Yeah. Yeah, we do pray for all the all the violence in Ukraine. And Lord, um, we thank you for again for the book of James, yes. for how you used uh, James, pastor of the Jerusalem Church, to uh, tell us how we can glorify you in our lives after we believe. And we pray that you would help us understand this this passage, which is uh, hotly debated, has been for a long time, and help us to rightly divide your word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so anyway, this is the second lesson of our spring quarter, the book of James, and the title of the lesson is Practical Christian Living, and it's James chapter 2. And so the first section, section A, is called The Believer and Favoritism. That's verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2 of James. And that's a pretty um, active topic right now, isn't it? Favoritism. Isn't that what BLM was all about? Yeah, BLM was all about favoritism. This is a different type of favoritism, but it's all the same thing. And so uh, anybody want to read uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2? Different translations. So anyway, verse 1, um, my brethren, so brethren, believers. Okay, these are believers, which we've said before, and that is the key to understanding what James is talking about here. So we don't fall into the same trap that Martin Luther did. So do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, what is the issue of favoritism in our day? I don't think it's really an issue, but it's a ginned up issue, which is race, isn't it? But, you know, and can believers be prejudiced? This is about prejudice here. Of course they can. Well, it was even right? in the early church. Yeah, so um, what is the remedy in the church for racism? Is it, uh, is it Black Lives Matter? No, it's the book of James. The book of, yeah, the book of James and, you know, the scripture. Yes, it goes back to Leviticus, love your neighbors yourself. It does, it does. And actually in this lesson, James will refer to that very verse. Yeah, so, um, so there is no, to be no favoritism in the Christian assembly. Uh, James is talking about the Christian assembly, and they have been having some uh, prejudice where they treat people who are dressed well, gold like they're well, yeah, the gold rings and, you know, uh, fancy clothes. They treat them better than someone who is dressed poorly. And James says that is no good. There's to be no favoritism in the Christian assembly either based on economics or based on skin color or based on anything else. There's to be no favoritism. So in verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now, many times if you say anything to someone about something, you disagree or say that you are doing something wrong, they will quote Matthew 7. Do not judge. 
Yeah, do not do They do. And uh, even believers do that when they're caught, you know, when you're, uh, and uh, so James here is saying, have you become judges with evil motives? So that means you're judging not in the way that Christ tells you to. Okay, you're ju- he, he says there should be no judgment at all here between economic status, between believers of high economic status or low economic status. There should be absolutely no judgment, absolutely no judgment between people of different skin colors. You know, who cares? And, uh, yeah. So, well, this is the... This is the answer to that, because people do say that. They get offended, and it's natural to get offended, but it's first... Yes, it's First Corinthians 5, 12, and 13. Paul's saying, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So we are called, this type of judgment is wrong. Judgment on economics, judgment on race, etc. That can, you know, that's it, being a judge with an evil motive. But we are to help each other become more like what we are. And when people are in sin... It's our responsibility as a brother or sister in Christ to point that out gently, gently. I mean, it's a difficult process, I think. So. Yeah, you. I mean, you, we ask for the same ourselves, you know. Yes, man, you we sh- should be open to it. Yeah, please bite my horse. Yeah, we should be open to correction, um, you know, if we need it. So, and actually, we should ask for it. Yeah, and that's why they use Matthew 7, because, you know, that, that specific passage right there, do not judge lest you be judged, it doesn't go beyond that in that one passage, and that's why they like it. <laughs> so, and so, you know, yeah, you know, Paul's epistles are just as inspired as Matthew's gospel, and so that's why you need to, um, you know, look at it all. But so verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So poor people have an advantage as far as faith. And that is because they don't have the temptation of idolatry for money. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So this is, this is a good prayer, I think. This is Proverbs 38 and 9. This is the words of Augur. It says, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I will not be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? That's the wealthy. Or that I not be in want and steal, and profane the name of my God. That's the poor. So the wealthier the poor. So he's praying, make me neither rich nor poor. Make me middle class. That's <laughs> what he's asking for there. So um, so that is how we deal with this issue of, and it's a false issue, 
BLM, and the church has drank it in like poison. It is because it's a godless, it's a Marxist godless philosophy, and it's it's yeah, it's a deception. And some Christians fall for it. So anyway, we want to stand against that. You know, we pray for them. These Mark, we pray for the Marxists because they don't have God. What does that mean? They're going to bad places. So we want them to turn and accept the Lord. Okay, so the next section is the believer and God's law. And this is verses 8 through 13 of chapter 2. Somebody want to tackle that piece? 8 through 13, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so the royal law, if you're fulfilling the royal law, and then he quotes Leviticus 19.18, the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus in Matthew 22 and 39 repeated that. They, they asked him, the question was, what is the greatest uh, law? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, you will fulfill the whole law. If you do that, you will fulfill the whole law. And all of the, for example, all, the, all of the laws are examples of how to do that, how to carry that out. They're, they're you know, um, expansions of how you how you do that in certain different situations and then he speaks of the law of liberty not right here okay in verse 12 he does but he did that before back in chapter 1 verse 25 one who looks intently at the perfect law the law of liberty and abides by it not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And this is important. Um, we in our church are very keen on knowledge. We want to understand the Bible accurately. We want to interpret it accurately. Um, but the blessing doesn't come from knowledge. The blessing comes from being an effectual doer. That's where the blessing comes. So we want to, in order to do it, you have to know it. But you want to go on from there and be willing to, okay, Lord, because you say so, just like Peter in the fishing. Okay, Lord, because you say so, I will do that, whatever it is. And he has lots of different things for you <laughs> to do. And that is how you become blessed in your life, is when you apply what you've learned. And the law of liberty, I, I have a commentary on James that I've been looking at to get ready for this by Zane Hodges, who is, he's now passed away, but he's one of the, was one of the professors at um, Dallas Seminary. And he made a comment on there that I thought was interesting. He said, the law of liberty, um, it's called the law of liberty, right? Because it aligns with our new nature. When we follow 
the law presented to us, okay? It aligns with our new nature, and so it's being yourself. And so it's a law of liberty. I thought that was good. Um, verse 9, if you show partiality, so this is continuing the theme here, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Why? Because we are children of God, and God does not show partiality. And we should be like him in these issues, in economic issues, in uh, skin color issues, in you know, issues where there, there is prejudice. We, we should not have that, because he's not that way. Right, right. So, yeah, so we should not be envious of someone else's gift, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah, we should take the gift we have been given and use it. Yeah, to his glory and 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 thank the Lord for the other person's gift, you know? So, um, yeah, that's that's why the, we can't touch the glory, right? We always want to deflect the glory to the Lord, yeah. So when we do something and people say, oh, you did such a great job, praise the Lord. It's, it scares me, actually. It scares me for anybody to say something like that to me because, you know, I don't want to take the Lord's glory because it's for him and he doesn't like it when a human takes his glory. So look at verse 10 and 11. Now, James is making a point here. The law is to show us something, okay? It says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all, because he's talking about prejudice here, right? In the church, and he's saying that's a sin. And he's comparing it to adultery and murder, prejudice. He's comparing it to adultery and murder. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. He also said, do not be prejudiced. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, have you become a transgressor? You have, excuse me, become a transgressor of the law. So, when we are prejudiced against people, we have broken the law. And we need to go to the Lord for restoration of fellowship. 1 John 1, nine. you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, you know, do we do that? Yeah, all the time. We do things like that all the time, you know, gossip, speaking negatively about someone when they're not there to defend themselves. That we have, you know, that's the one thing that uh, Pastor Jim, I thought was excellent about. He would never do that, never. Sometimes he would be so secretive, he, he wouldn't tell you anything about anything. <laughs> you know, I think he took it too far sometimes, but... He would never backstab someone uh, when they weren't, weren't around. He would confront you to your face, you know, which is the other good side of that. But he would never say anything negative about you when you weren't, weren't around. And, you know, because that's a sin. And that is, that breaks the law just as adultery would break the law, just as murder would break the law. Right, there's still sin, but there isn't transgression. Because there's no law as a standard, right? That, that's what's funny. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. No guidance. No guidance. Right. 
So, so James, what James is saying here is this is this is serious. So we don't don't want people to show prejudice in the assembly. We want to accept everyone. Yeah, any transgression of God's standard breaks fellowship. And then verse 12, again, the law of liberty. So I want to compare that, the law of liberty, to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21. Paul, this is about him being anything to anybody so he could save some. Said to the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. Of course, he was a Jew. To those who are under the law as under the law. So he shaved his head and he paid for others to do so with a Nazarite vow. So that I might win those under the law. To those who are without law as without law. Okay, so to the Gentiles. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Okay, and that is what we are under, the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Um, you know, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but and we grow by faith alone in Christ alone, but he directs us by his commandments. And when we uh, submit to those commandments with the power of the Holy Spirit, which we need, we have to have, then it causes us to grow and it maintains our fellowship with him. So how are we judged? It says, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Okay? How are we to be judged by the law of liberty? Remember, he's writing to believers here. What's our judgment that we're looking forward to? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Our judgment is an award ceremony. That's our judgment. Um, judgment for sin has passed for us the moment we accepted Jesus. So our sins are not dealt with any longer. They are paid for and they are done. That, that is why that the only thing that sends you to hell is failure to accept the one who fulfilled the law. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So for the believer, the judgment is in the word ceremony. For the unbeliever, they may have done many good things in their lives in a human sense. Just like we will not be judged for our sin, they will be judged for none of those things. None of those good things. Why? Because they have broken the law. When you go before a court, a criminal court, they don't consider that maybe you gave to the Kaiwanis, or that maybe you, you know, were saving the whales. That's right. So at the great white throne, which is where the unbelievers are judged, their, judge, their judgment would be on their sin. So, for example, Vladimir Putin right now is vying for the depth of the lake of fire with Hitler and Stalin. You know, by all the innocent people, all the children, all the maternity hospitals that he's blowing up. And the Lord is keeping track of all those things. And uh, he, you know, now, if he is was saved, he wouldn't have to pay that. And believe it or not, he could be saved. Mm -hmm. 
He could get saved. Even Stalin could have been saved. Manasseh was saved, who is almost as bad as all these people. That's right. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll save. Even Hitler, Stalin, and Vladimir Putin. And that's grace, man, isn't it? That is grace. Yes. Okay, now we're going to get into the part that is the most confusing and debated. Uh, section C, faith and works. A lot of very excellent people will say that, well, we'll, let, we'll read it first and then I'll we'll talk about it. But, um, man, if I read this one, I'll read this one. I want the online people to hear this. So verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So this is part of this difficult passage. But um, what does this sound like here that James is saying about faith and works? Exactly. A lot of good people do that. And, um, yes. Yeah. So, this this is my answer to that. <laughs> oh, brace yourself. Brace yourself. No. What, what, what happens, you know, many churches, Reformed churches, Catholic churches, um, a lot of churches take our salvation and remember it's in three phases, and they'll take those first two phases and crush them together. Okay, so the first phase is justification. And that's all the passages that say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The thief on the cross did that. He did not have time to do anything else. Okay, but somewhere after you have done that, the moment you do that, the Holy Spirit comes in. The new, you're given a new nature. Sometime thereafter, the Lord says, follow me. Okay? Peter, James, and John were saved. You know, if you take a uh, harmony of the Gospels, it's earlier that Peter, James, and John believed. And then later in the harmony in Matthew and Mark and Luke, Jesus comes while they're fishing after they've been saved, justified, and says, follow me. That's discipleship. And it comes after. You know, with Paul, he was saved, and then Ananias told him what he was supposed to do, and he said, all right, discipleship, like three minutes after he was saved. So understanding these three phases of salvation is important for understanding correctly this passage. And, you know, 
Martin Luther didn't even put it in his Bible. He put it in the appendix, the book of James, because he thought it was contradicting what Paul said. It's not contradicting what Paul said. And if you look at Titus 2, 11, 12, and 13, there you'll see the three phases of salvation. So Titus 11, two, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's justification. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's the second phase. Sanctification. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's the third stage. The rapture or glorification. That's the three phases of salvation. And um, <clears throat> so, in verse 14 of James, Faith alone in Christ alone, without work, saves from the penalty of our sin in hell. So he says, what, and then what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? Before you have any works, you're saved from hell. Before you have any works. And you're saved from hell eternally. Before you have any works. That is not what James is dealing with here. Because remember, all these people are justified. All these people are justified. He wants to urge them on. Because just like... You can't lose your salvation, but you can lose a lot by not following. You can lose a lot. Yeah, so he says, if he, someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? So the question is, what does save mean there? Now, when we think of save as Christians, we think of salvation from hell. This word, this Greek, this is the Greek word sozo. It is not a technical word. It doesn't mean the same thing everywhere it is found. It's like the word apple. Apple can be a fruit. It can be the apple of your eye, which is your pupil. It can be a computer company, you know, etc. So how do you figure out the word apple? What does it mean? How do you figure which of those contexts? Thank you. Yes, the context in which it's found. So in this context we're looking at here, James writing to justified believers and um, talking about now the second phase of their salvation. He's talking about salvation from death. What's the opposite of significance? <laughs> it's in, in a, a worthless life, an a fruit, yeah, a fruitless life, an insignificant life. The Lord has given us the opportunity to have an extremely significant life, but it only happens if we are active in our discipleship. And uh, so I want to look at Proverbs 10 and 27. Remember, this is the first book of the New Testament, so James didn't have Paul to go to or any of the other apostles and uh, I think he went to the Proverbs mostly, because James is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. So I think this is how saved is being used in this instance. He says, 
Proverbs 10.27, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. You can be wicked as a believer. You can act wicked, and that will shorten your physical life. So verses 15 and 16, he gives an example then about usefulness as a believer. If a brother or sister, so a fellow believer, is without clothing and in need of daily food, and he said, go in peace. <laughs> you know, have a good day. And, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. And then he says, what use is that? Okay. This, this is another key word in this passage. And uh, we need to, because he calls faith here dead. Now, does faith, a dead faith means a non-existent faith? No. Right. Because death in the Bible is not non-existence. Right? It's separation. Separation. So, what is being separated? The faith that saved you from hell, from the works that the Lord designed for you to do. So you're separating your motor from what it's supposed to do. I think that's the that's the way to correctly understand this passage. So faith is dead. It's not non-existent. It's separated from works. There is no spiritual growth. The second phase of of our salvation, the sanctification, is our growth phase. You know, it's just like a baby. A baby's born. A baby cannot be unborn. And then the baby grows. You know, the second phase, what James is talking about here, is the growth phase. And that's where we become more like Jesus, which is what we want, you know. And that is where our sin nature fights tooth and nail <laughs> the whole way. And, you know, we have uh, these three enemies as soon as we're saved, right? Our own flesh, the world, and the devil that are, that are fighting us in this growth phase. They don't want us to do that, you know, especially Satan. He wants to stop us from confessing and getting back on the tractor, you know, getting back on the bicycle. He wants to make us stop. Right. Yeah, I mean, the other, James is very convicting. And someplace in here, we'll get to it eventually, he says, if you see good to do it and you don't, that's a sin. You know, and that's a convic that convicts me no end. Yeah, the Lord wants to use us. You know, He's saved us. Yeah, and isn't that great that that we have the ability just by following the Lord to be extremely significant? So, verse eighteen he talks about someone may say, "You have faith; I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works." So works in response to faith demonstrate what has happened in you to other people. Because if, you know, the, the salvation from our penalty is in our mind, right? It's in our heart. It can't be seen by others. We just believe the message. And that saves us. Um, but nobody else knows that. The only way you can be a witness for the Lord is when you submit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's great is that the Lord has a unique set of works for each person. 
they're not no, the same. So I'm just saying, by, by standing yeah. out by something like mm-hmm. that, you know. For evangelism. Yeah, that's our platform. So then the next example James gives of this is the demons, which is interesting. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now, is this verse talking about salvation? Yeah, it's talking about monotheism. It has nothing to do with salvation at all. Can the demons be saved? Demons cannot be saved. Jesus did not become an angel. Yeah, Jesus did not redeem the angels because he became a man, not an angel. So the the, uh, program of salvation is not even open to angels. And uh, so what what is this teaching then? It's teaching that demons respond physically to their faith. They know that there is judgment coming. They can't get out of it. How many, how many examples do we have that of demons and Jesus in confrontation? They said, don't torture us before the time. They tremble. Right. And so if demons react to their belief of what's going to happen, Shouldn't we? <laughs> that's what that's what James is teaching here. You know, we we should also react to our belief of who Jesus is and what He has done for us. Okay, so now in the quarterly they talk about this, and this is a red herring that I wanted to point out. There's a box in here that talks about saving faith. Have you ever heard that phrase? Saving faith. Have you ever seen it in the Bible? No. That is a Calvinistic term. That's a Calvinistic term. Saving faith or genuine faith. Okay, have you heard genuine faith? Yeah, what is saving faith? So that that implies that there is a saving faith and that there is a non-saving faith. That is not biblical. There is not a genuine faith. There is not a saving faith. There's only faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Okay? What what they're trying to do is to say, and this goes into the Calvinist doctrine of perseverance of the saints. They're saying that if you are truly a Christian, you will persevere in good works until the end of your life. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. That ignores all of the examples of carnal Christians in the Scriptures including the whole book of Corinthians, you know, there are, it, it is sad that there are people who do not follow the Lord after they're saved. They stay with their sin nature, but it is a sad truth. And it is what James is trying to argue against, that we don't want to do that. We want to continue to follow the Lord. So when People say saving faith, or or that, or they say they're false believers, or they say they have a spurious faith. Have you heard that one? A spurious faith. That means it's not a real faith. It's a false faith. That that's silly. <laughs> well, that's that comes from this per, doctrine of perseverance of the saints, and also from this this habit they have of conflating 
justification, and sanctification. Jesus made a promise many, many times. Just believe on me. I'll save you. And he doesn't say anything else. And then, of course, there's a lot of other things like the book of James that tells us what he would like us to do while we're alive after we're saved. Yeah. And what James is saying that is that if you're saved and you're inactive in that faith and you're still living like an unbeliever, your faith is useless. It is useless. Um, it exists, but it is not being used. Therefore, it is useless. So there's only faith. There's not saving faith. There's not genuine faith. There's not spurious faith. People that say their faith does vary, doesn't it? Faith goes up and down depending on. And if you walk in discipleship, your faith will be strengthened. As you trust the Lord, in, and especially in difficult times or in trials, if you succeed in trials, say, I'm going to do this the way the Lord. Yeah, you know, you're getting run over by a bus, and you trust the Lord through that, and you're having a difficult time. And as you get to the other end of it, and the Lord saves you, your faith is built up. It is strengthened. When I started following the Lord in uh, San Antonio, you know, and I joined the E-Free Church, which said they believed the Bible was true, which I thought was crazy at the time. I remember I was in an apartment. I was separated. I was alone. I woke up, and I'm, and I'm thinking, is this real? Yeah, on my bed stand was a Bible. I looked at it, and I looked at it. This is real history. This is real. This is real, yeah. But you know what? If you believe, the Lord locks you in. I mean, I, I myself am an example of this. You know, I believed it when I was seven. I was in a terrible church, terrible Presbyterian Church USA, totally liberal. I became agnostic. I thought being atheist was stupid because that means you were sure of something you're not sure about. So I didn't become atheist, but I became agnostic. So this verse applied to me. This is 2 Timothy 2, 13. If we are faithless, what's that? That is without faith. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If you're faithless, your faith goes to zero, he will still save you. Yeah. So, yeah, because our faith does vary. Everybody's faith varies. And the more you grow spiritually, the less that will happen. Yeah. Yeah. Once you grow spiritually and you see over and over and over and over the Lord come through, that won't happen anymore. But especially when you're first saved. So, you know, I mean, being a disciple is not easy. Do, do you agree with that? <laughs> Yeah, the the justification is pretty easy. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, right, and that's that's where the faith is exercised. Where you say, okay, I'll just go ahead, and uh, and he comes through. 
you know, he comes through. So, sorry I broke down, but you know how I am. Let's go on to the next section, which is justification and works. Okay, now this is uh, verses 20 through 26. This is, um, I'm going to read that one too because I want it on the tape. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So here again, James is doing the same thing as he did with the word saved in the other section. He's taking the word justification and using it in a different context for a different meaning than Paul did. Paul used the word justification for salvation from hell, for the initial belief. That is justification here. Yeah. Before others. Right, before others. So he said, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Okay, so he's saying justified, and when was Abraham saved in the sense that we understand? Yes. Here, it, here it says, Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6. That's when God told him, you'll be the father of many nations, you'll have so many descendants, you won't be able to count them all. And he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's what happens to us. And then, and Paul uses this exact same verse about justification in Romans 4, but then James adds another clause at the end, and he was called the friend of God. Paul does not use that. Okay. How do you become a friend of God? Mm -hmm. Jesus said in John fifteen fourteen, You are my friends if you obey my commands. That is how you become a friend of God. You can be a saved person going to heaven and not be a friend of God. So Abraham was a friend of God, and that is how he was justified by works. He was justified by works, not to God. He was already justified to God. He was justified by those watching. You know, his faith was justified in front of the people around him as he acted on his faith. And that's what Rahab did too. Rahab acted on her faith. So amen. Thanks for hanging in there.